1 Corinthians 15, 1 through 11. Please join me in reading this text. Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved. If you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that He was buried, that He was raised in the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, and that He appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. Then He appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then He appeared to James, then to all of the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, He appeared also to me, for I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and His grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is in me. Whether then it was I or they, so we preach and so you believe. Please join me in prayer. Heavenly Father, as we come to look over these next few weeks at the life of the Apostle Paul, we ask that you would stir our hearts, stir our hearts to see godliness through grace. Stir our hearts to see and long for the image of Christ in Paul, that we would pursue it with our own hearts. Father, convict us, comfort us in the gospel, comfort us in the grace of Christ, and grant us great strength to pursue these things for the good of the church, for the glory of Christ, for your glory, for your honor in the world, and for our joy. We pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. Thank you. Please be seated. Well, last week we were able, by God's grace, to finish the pastoral epistles of First and Second Timothy. And uh, we had planned for a few weeks to, after the service today, watch a particular video that demonstrates the life of Paul, I think, in an effective way. And so I was thinking over the next couple of weeks, we might just look at the life of the Apostle Paul before we leave the pastoral epistles for a while. And uh, it's my joy to be able to study these things with you, and I think it'll be, Lord willing, for our benefit. Also, like I said, after the the morning service today, we're going to be having a lunch together and sent out an email and put on Facebook to invite all of you to bring a lunch and we'll share that together and then come up here afterwards and have a video, a special video presentation of the Apostle Paul's life. If you didn't know about that and you'd like to go and grab something quickly and come on back, you're welcome to do that. In fact, I encourage you to do that and share that time of fellowship with us as well. Who in your life did you admire and respect so much that you felt like you wanted to be like them? Can you think of someone? And maybe you can think about specific areas of your life where you began to imitate them. Maybe you began to talk the way they did in some way, or dress like they did, or even 
tried to imitate the way they did their work or maybe the way they treated a spouse or their children. You looked at their life and you, and you would say to yourself, that's what I want to be like when I grow up. We say that, don't we? That's what I want to be like when I grow up. I still say that. That's what I want to be like when I grow up. Well, I think that it can be a very helpful experience to have someone like that in your life. Obviously, it could be unhelpful if that person is very ungodly in their thinking and behavior, but it can be a tremendously helpful Christian grace that God could provide and a blessing when you, the Lord brings you someone that you can follow, that who is walking life ahead of you, and you can take some of your greatest challenges to them and say, well, how did you do this? How did the Lord work in your heart in this way? And it's such a blessing, particularly when that person whom you want to be like is very open then with you as well and says, this is the struggle of the heart. Here is how God ministered to me personally. And here's how the resultant actions and the life that came out of that. You know, in some way, we all have that in the Apostle Paul. Paul wrote most of the letters of the New Testament, which you know. He, didn't, he wasn't the one who wrote the greatest content of words. That was Luke. But the greatest amount of letters written was the Apostle Paul, by the Apostle Paul. And I guess I would argue that probably the Apostle Paul's writings were the most personal of all of the New Testament authors. He really was able, by the grace of God, through inspiration, to bear his heart out. For example, you think of that very clearly when you see the, le- the words of Paul in the letter of 2 Corinthians, for example. He said things that he didn't say in any other letter. He really showed his heart to the Corinthians whom he loved and longed much for. And so, this is why so many churchmen over the years uh, of church history have sought to follow and imitate the Apostle Paul through his writings above any other Apostle or New Testament writer. In fact, I can think of two off the top of my head here. Uh, John Piper, whom we all have, have studied in some form, wrote a book called Why I Love the Apostle Paul. Uh, Pastor John MacArthur wrote a book, 26 Leadership Principles, and he drew all of them out of the life of the Apostle Paul. And so that's not an uncommon thing in the body of Christ. And so the Lord has given that to us in the Apostle Paul. Now I understand we can't call him up and ask him questions, but we certainly have a lot of material from which to gain insight for our own lives. In fact, the Apostle Paul exhorted his readers to follow him. Now that may often seem to us to say, hey, follow me, do what I do, like maybe an expression of, of some sort of pride, but in a sense, it wasn't. Not at all. He, in fact, said this many times over his life. 1 Corinthians 4 and verse 16 says, I urge you then, be imitators of me. Follow me. 1 Corinthians 11 and verse 1, which is the main idea of this particular short series that we have, 1 Corinthians 11 1 says, be imitators of me as I am of Christ. Philippians 3 verse 17 says, brothers, join in imitating me. And keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. 1 Thessalonians 1, 6-7, Paul commended the Thessalonian church for imitating him and Timothy 
and the co-workers that came with him when that church was planted. He said, And you became imitators of us and of the Lord. For you received the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit so that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and in Achaia. 2 Thessalonians 3, 7-9 bears out this same calling. For you yourselves know how you ought to imitate us. Because we were not idle when we were with you, nor did we eat anyone's bread without paying for it, but with toil and labor. We worked day and night that we might not be a burden to any of you. But it was not because we do not have the right, but to give you in ourselves an example to imitate. If you believe that Paul wrote Hebrews, these verses will plug in nicely. But there's a couple of verses in Hebrews I want to draw your attention to. Hebrews 6.12, so that you may not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. Hebrews 13.7, remember your leaders, those who spoke to you the word of God, consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. And so this week and the next two weeks, Lord willing, it is my desire to draw us into the Scriptures and to press upon our hearts, my heart and your heart, this particular invitation of Paul and exhortation, we may say, by the power of Christ's Spirit and grace, let us seek to imitate Paul as he imitated Christ. 1 Corinthians 11.1 Now as I sat down and thought about what areas of the Apostle Paul's life were particularly potent or powerful in my mind as I read, I wrote out fairly quickly, surprisingly, 15 things. I want us to take five this week, five next week, and five the, one, the week after. Let me read them to you so you can see them all. And they're on your, your sheet. I put them on both sides of your sheet. So don't worry, we're not going to have a 15-point sermon today. We're going to do just five of them. When I think of the Apostle Paul, when you think through the letters of Paul, and you think about all of the details that were written out in each letter, here's, here's what comes to my mind. Genuine humility. Boasting in Christ through weakness. Dependence on Christ's grace. A heart full of thanksgiving. Sacrificial love for others. Relentless gospel devotion. Or we may say it, love for the Word of God. Effective discipleship and mentoring. Selfless ministry motivations. Labor to unburden others. Resilience in various circumstances. Willing to do unpleasant ministry. Eagerness to suffer for Christ's sake. He was a spiritual warfare warrior. And we say that. Persevering. He had a persevering eternal perspective. And we can all remember those texts where Paul so easily went into exultant doxology. We call it love for Christ. So we're going to look at these 15 things over the next few weeks, and it is my prayer that the Lord would use these to stir us and to call us to depend upon the grace of Christ to grow to be more like Christ as Paul was. Number one this morning, let's look at this quality that I'm calling genuine humility. Now, by virtue of this particular study being not in one text, 
we're going to go all over the place. So I hope that many texts, turning to many texts, won't frustrate you. If, if you can, just write down the reference even. And uh, if you can follow along, fine. I'm going to do my best to read them slowly and clearly, and we'll draw some things from these texts. But what I see in Paul, first of all, is genuine humility. What does it mean to be humble? What is a good definition of humility? I looked it up, of course, in the scriptural term, and the essential definition of humility is simply to be lowly. To be lowly. To esteem oneself lower than others. Now, it's interesting that 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 term lowly is inherent in the definition of humility and how diametrically opposite that is to what our culture says we need. What does our cultures often say we need? Self-esteem. Paul says you need self-lowliness, is what he says. It's to think and act fittingly, fittingly as a creator. I'm sorry, as a creature before his creator. There's a lot of implications in that. We are creatures before our Creator. In fact, we could say it this way, as a sinful creature before His or her holy Creator. When we behave and think fittingly, that's humility for that relationship. To think and act fittingly as a loving servant to others. In fact, I I love Paul's definition of humility in Philippians 2, verses 3-5, through where he says, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. Do nothing. Not one action in life must be motivated by selfish ambition or conceit. But, what should motivate all of life? In humility, count others more significant than yourself. Count others more significant than yourself. You know, just that If we could embrace that in the heart, how many relational struggles would that dissolve? I'm going to count you more significant than me. I'm going to count your needs more significant than mine. I'm going to count your interests more significant than mine here. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Christ exercised that kind of humility. And clearly, as his letters reveal, Paul was a humble servant of Christ. But how did Christ enable Paul to acquire that Christ-like quality? How do we get there in our thinking? How did Paul get there in his thinking? It's not just a, a humility switch that you can turn on. How did he get there? I thought of three things from his letters that seemed to drive Paul's growing humility. The first thing is that Paul beheld the glory of Christ. We know this from Acts chapter 9. Would you, would you turn there with me? Acts chapter 9 was, is the first record in the Scriptures of the Apostle Paul's conversion. This is, this is the beginning of his humility. Before this conversion, Paul was a proud, self-affirming, self-promoting Pharisee. But after his conversion, he was a humble, suffering servant of Christ. And this, this testimony of Paul is, I believe, recorded two other times in the book of Acts when Paul 
shares his own testimony, and also in the book of Galatians, some measure of it is there. Acts 9 verse 1, but Saul, who was Paul before his conversion, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Now as he, was, he went on his way, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him, and falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, Who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and enter the city, and you will be told what you are to do. The men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the voice but seeing no one. Saul rose from the ground, and although his eyes were open, he saw nothing, so that they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. And for three days he was without sight, and neither ate nor drank. That was the Apostle Paul humbled at the sight of Christ. His humility comes out just in the title. What does he call the one whom he sees and whom he is blinded by? Lord, my Master. You see this over and over again in history that humility begins with beholding the glory of Christ. Moses saw the glory of Christ and he made haste and bowed his head toward the earth and worshiped. Exodus 34, verse 8. Isaiah Isaiah 6, saw the Lord high and lifted up, and he said what? Woe is me. I am undone. I am a man of unclean lips. Daniel saw this mighty warrior in a Christophany, the person of Christ, at the side of the river, and he was on his face as though dead until that one said, fear not. John, the same thing, saw the same one with eyes like fire, hair white as snow, and so on. And he fell on his face as though dead until Christ said, fear not. I am the one who redeems, who has washed in the blood, and so on. And that's where humility begins. If we think we have seen the glory of Christ and yet come away from what we think we have seen with a sense of pride, have we really seen the glory of Christ? And where do we see the glory of Christ? In the Word of God. Paul tells us that, 2 Corinthians verse, chapter 3, verse 18, we all beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord. Right? We, we behold the glory of Christ in the Word of God. But even so, as sinful people, looking back on the privilege of beholding the glory of Christ, a sinful man may be still tempted to conceit. And so was Paul, right? Because of the revelations that he received, he was tempted to be proud. And so, not only was Paul given this beholding of the glory of Christ, but he was given affliction in privilege in order to prevent conceit. We see this in 2 Corinthians chapter 12. Notice this text.
2 Corinthians chapter 12, Paul is talking about his, the revelations of Christ that he did receive. He says in verse 2, I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago was caught up into the third heaven. He's talking about himself. Whether in the body or out of the body, I do not know. God knows. And I know that this man was caught up into paradise, whether in the body or out of the body, I do not know. God knows. And he heard things that cannot be told, which man cannot utter. On behalf of this man, I will boast. But on my own behalf, I will not boast except of weakness. Though if I should wish to boast, I would not be a, I would not be a fool, for I would be speaking the truth. But I refrain from it so that no one may think more of me than he sees in me or hears from me. So to keep me from becoming conceited, because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, a thorn was given me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from becoming conceited. Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I'm content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Why did God give to Paul a thorn in the flesh? To keep him from being conceited. To keep him humble. Why did he need that? Because he had been given so much privilege in the revelation of Christ. And he was a sinner. You can tell even by how he talks about this situation that, that he had grown much in humility. He even wants to disassociate himself with that man whom he was in his receiving of revelation. That man received the revelation, I will be humble. This is how God enabled Paul to be humble by beholding the glory of Christ, by giving to him affliction in that privilege to prevent his conceit, to know that everything that he received was not because of himself, but because of God's grace, because of God's kindness. And in in all of that, Paul also was humble because he had a clear sense of his own sinfulness. A clear sense of his own sinfulness. You, You can remember, we studied months ago now, Paul's conversion in 1 Timothy chapter 1. 1 Timothy chapter 1 is a precious record of Paul's conversion. And what does he call himself? I thank him, verse 12, 1 Timothy 1, I thank him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because he judged me faithful, appointing me to his service. Though formerly I was a blasphemer, a persecutor, an insolent opponent. But I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. That Jesus came to the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. But I received mercy for this reason, that in me, as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display His perfect patience as an example to those who are to believe in Him for eternal life. Paul says he realizes, he feels deeply, he is aware, he's very mindful of his sinfulness. His past sinfulness as a blasphemer, persecutor, insolent opponent. 
he is aware of his present sinfulness. In verse 15, he says, the world, Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. I think this is why Paul is humble. You see that struggle continuing in his life, for example, in Romans 7, verses 12 through 25, where he is recognizing the war within him, that now that he is in Christ, he has this new principle of life within him that loves the law of God, that loves the word of God, that wants to obey God, and yet there's this principle of earthliness that fights against that desire to do God's will. And so there's a conflict constantly within him where he says, the good thing that I want to do, I fail to do it. And the evil thing that I don't want to do, that's what I end up doing. So with my mind, I serve the law of God. With my flesh, I still serve the law of sin. It's a struggle within him. And he cries out at the end of that text, right? Oh, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Right? That was Paul's mindset. He had a clear sense of his own sinfulness. And therefore, he was humble. He was humble before others. He was humble before Christ. A clear sense of his own sinfulness. And then, finally here, a clear sense of his own inability. We read it this morning when we opened. He says here in 1 Corinthians 15, Last of all, verse 8, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. I'm the least of all the apostles. I'm unworthy because I persecuted the church of God. Yes, he still felt a sense of guilt, but yet was resting in the forgiveness of Christ and the grace. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. I'm the least of the apostles, he says. He says the same thing in Ephesians 3.8. I am the least of the saints, Paul says. In Ephesians 3.8. He says in 1 Corinthians, 1 Corinthians chapter 2, speaking of his great sense of inability, 1 Corinthians 2.1, and I, when I came to you, brothers, I didn't come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. He wasn't an exceptional speaker. He wasn't a speaker whom the men of the, the the, the sophists of that day would listen to him and say, wow, that guy is really entertaining to listen to. I didn't come with lofty speech or wisdom. I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. Maybe some who heard Him said, all right, Paul, we get it. Jesus Christ and Him crucified. He said, this is, this is what you need to hear. <laughs> and I was with you in what? Weakness and in fear and much trembling. And my speech and my message were not implausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and power. I don't want your faith to rest in me, Paul is implying. I want your faith to rest in the wisdom of men, of me, but in the power of God. He had a clear sense of his own ability and desired to get out of the way and let his weakness be a channel for the power of God to be at work. He says the same thing in 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 10. A letter where he bears out his weakness clearly. 2 Corinthians 10.10 says, For they say his letters are weighty and strong, but his bodily presence, weak. His speech, of no account. 
Paul confessed it there. That's how people thought of him. But then, in 2 Corinthians 2, he says this as well. 2 Corinthians 2.16 says, he asks that question. Who is sufficient for these things? He knew he wasn't. Who was sufficient to be, verse 15, an aroma of Christ among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing? Who is sufficient for these things? He wasn't. For we are not like so many peddlers of God's word, but as men of sincerity, as commissioned by God, in the sight of God we speak in Christ. And chapter 3, verses 5 and 6. Not that we are sufficient in ourselves to claim anything is coming from us. Anything is coming from us. But our sufficiency is from God, who has made us sufficient to be ministers of a new covenant, not of the letter of the Spirit, for the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. Paul had a clear sense of his own inability in ministry, in speaking, in in godliness. And I think these things are part of what, at least part of what, gave him a heart of genuine humility. He beheld the glory of Christ. He was given affliction in that privilege. He had a clear sense of his own sinfulness and a clear sense of his own inability. I want to think about this with you for a moment. Do you seek to clothe yourself in that kind of humility? 1 Peter 5.5, clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility towards one another. For God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Do those who know you best feel that you are humble? Are you pursuing these biblical mindsets that bear out the fruit of genuine humility? This is something we can learn from the example of Paul. This Christ-like humility. No, Christ didn't come by His humility in the same way Paul did. But the fruit of his heart was this humility. You see, no servant of Christ will be effective in ministry without being dressed in the humility of Christ. It's absolutely true. And we see that in Paul. And may it be ours as well. By the power of Christ's Spirit and grace. Let's imitate Paul as he imitated Christ in this humility. Secondly, this morning, I see Paul as one who was boasting in Christ through weakness. Boasting in Christ through weakness. We've already touched on Paul's sense of inability and weakness, but Paul's sense of weakness began, I think, with his sense of his own human inability to please God for salvation. And it permeated his sense of his own inability to serve God in sanctification and beyond. And so consequently, through Paul's weakness, what would he do? He wouldn't boast in himself. He wouldn't boast in himself in his salvation, his own righteousness. He wouldn't boast in himself for his own personal human strength. Instead, he would boast in Christ. It's good to boast. It just depends on what you're boasting about. To, vis- to, to verbally speak out what you praise, what you exult in, what you rejoice in. Rejoicing, exulting, boasting are very similar words in the New Testament. Paul boasted in the cross of Christ, first and foremost. 
in contrast with his own sense of weakness to please God for salvation. I'll read the verse to you. Galatians 6, 14-15. Galatians 6, 14, Paul says, But far be it from me to boast, except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. For, or because, neither circumcision counts for anything, nor uncircumcision, but a new creation. Let me just encapsulate those verses. What is Paul saying? His boast, his joy, his exaltation is what the cross of Christ accomplished for him to bring him to God. And through that, he is dead to the world's religion. He does not need any form of worldly self-righteousness to be brought to God. It's pointless for him. That's why he says, I am dead to the world. The world's been crucified to me and so I to the world because neither circumcision counts for anything nor uncircumcision. I don't need human religion to get to God. Why? I have the cross. And he knows anyway that human religion is weak to bring him to God. Self-righteousness cannot bring a sinner to God. Only Christ's righteousness. Only the cross. And so that was Paul's boast. The world's religious ways count for nothing and are weak to save, but the cross of Christ is mighty to save. And that was Paul's boast. Paul also boasted in the sovereignty of God. I'm going to turn back here to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. First Corinthians chapter 1, I want to read verses 26 to 30. 1 Corinthians 1, 26 to, well, 31. 26 to 31. For consider your calling, God's sovereign summons to bring a sinner into salvation. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose, God sovereignly chose For salvation, what is foolish in the world? To shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world. To shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world. Even the things that are not. To bring to nothing the things that are. Why? So that no human being might boast in the presence of God. Might boast in our own human self-righteousness. Our own strength. Before the face of God. But it's because of God, the Father. Because of Him, you are in Christ. Because God caused Christ to become to us wisdom from God, righteousness, sanctification, and redemption. So that, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. This was Paul's perspective. There wasn't anything about me or anything about you that incited God's sovereign love to reach us in our lowest state and save us. Nothing about us. In fact, it was... Us in our weakness, in our ignobleness, in our, what are the words Paul uses? Not many wise, not many powerful, not many noble. God chose what is foolish, what is weak, what is low, what is despised. Why? Because God is glorified in being the Savior to those whom the world judges as nothing. 
God is glorified. His, Paul boasted in the sovereign grace of God to choose nobodies, including himself. And we don't need ourself to be saved anyway, because God makes Christ to be everything to us in salvation. What does Christ become to us? Wisdom in our foolishness. Righteousness in our sinfulness. Sanctification in our commonness. Redemption from our slavery. God makes Christ all this to us. So Paul boasted in the sovereign choice of God in his own weakness. He boasted in the cross of Christ in his own weakness. And then he boasted in the power of Christ. 2 Corinthians 4. Paul boasts in the power of Christ, particularly in his ministry. He wasn't strong. He was weak. He was trembling. But he boasted in the power of God at work in him. In and through his weakness. 2 Corinthians 4, verse 7. What does he call himself? And what is he boasting in? We have, but we have this treasure. We have the gospel in what? Jars of clay. There, there is what Paul is using to illustrate himself. I'm a clay pot. I'm a privy pot, Paul says. I'm nothing. I'm refuse. I'm weak. But this was to show. Show what? A surpassing power. That the surpassing power belongs not to us, but to God. It belongs to God and not to us. Second Corinthians and 12 in verse 5, he says it there again, on behalf of this man I will boast, but on my own behalf I will not boast except of my weakness. I am weak. I am weak. And he continues in verses 9 to 10, my grace is sufficient for you, God said, for my power is made perfect in weakness. And so Paul began to boast all the more gladly. Isn't that something? He didn't boast in his weakness with only a sense of longing for it to be removed, he, he began to boast with some gladness, all the more gladly, of my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, and I'm content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. This is such a, a magnificent part of Paul's heart and life. Paul boasted in his God-ordained thorn of weakness so that he could experience power. So that everything in his life could be explained by God's power. So that others could see God's power at work in him. So he could boast in God's power. You've experienced some of this, haven't you? Where you know that God has called you to do and be something that when you look at it ahead of time, you're thinking, I, I have no ability to do that or be like that. It's not in my heart. I don't have it in my body. My body is weak. My heart is weak. My mind is weak. This is so far beyond me. Have you felt that as a child of God? But then by faith, you step forward into whatever you know God has called you to. And when you get there, what happens? 
God supplies to you the power and the grace that you need to do it for his glory. And on the other side, you look back at that and you say, that was all God. And I know it. Right? Is that joy to you? That's gladness. That was all God. That was not me. I couldn't. And you're not even, it's not, it's not pretentious at all. You're not saying that because it sounds good. You have felt that deeply. That's where Paul lived. You know, we think about living like that. We're like, mm, not really. I like to feel well. I like to feel able. I like to feel clear in my mind. But sometimes God ordains that weakness for us so that we move into His will totally dependent on Him, feeling our dependence on Him. And then He supplies us with His strength. Here's the question as we come to application with this. In what do you boast? What do you boast? What do you boast about on Facebook? What do you boast about with your friends? What is your boast in? Is it in yourself? Or is it in Christ? All right? What do you boast in? What do you complain about? What deficiencies do you find yourself complaining about that seem to halt you from doing what you feel is right and good even and what God may want you to do? What do you complain about in your own weakness? You know, here's here's part of where Paul takes us. Are you willing to begin to boast in what you often complain about? Because there, in that place, the perfections of God will be put on display for you to boast in. Does that make sense? I think that's what God has for us sometimes. To begin to boast where we so easily want to complain when God's power accomplishes His will. By the power of Christ's Spirit and grace, let us imitate Paul as he imitated Christ. Number three this morning, dependence on Christ's grace. Of course this comes next. This comes next because this grace is what was operating in Paul through all of this. What is grace? We often think of that definition, God's riches at Christ's expense. And it's not a bad definition of grace, truly. God's riches freely given to us, paid for by Christ, right? On the cross. Every gift from God given to us in undeserved favor from heavenly places because of the merit of Christ. What kinds of things are included in God's grace? I'll just give you some words. I alliterated them. It's a, it's a way that I can remember some of these terms. Grace, what's included in grace? Pardon. Pardon. Forgiveness of sin. Position that I am seated with Christ, clothed in His righteousness, a fellow heir with Christ, a child of God, and all that goes along with that position earned for me by Christ. Grace is pardon. Grace is position. Grace is presence. The Spirit of God living in a sinner like you and like me. That's grace. His peace. The peace that comes from being in a right position with God. From being indwelt by the Holy Spirit. Being at friendship with God. Being, having my guilt lifted. Having fear of judgment lifted. Peace. That's grace to us. That's a, that's a part of God's grace. His provision. Every provision. Every provision that we would have. Anything, dear ones, everything outside of hell 
that we enjoy is a provision of God's grace. Providence, God working all things for our good, is grace to us. Instead of God working all things to pour out His wrath upon us, He's now working out all things for our sanctification, for our Christ-likeness, for our joy in Christ. That's grace. Providence, power, the power, the strength that we experience from God to do the good works that He's prepared for us to do. And His promises, His endless faithful promises from the moment we're saved to the moment that we are with Him in glory is filled with His promises. Paul was absolutely dependent upon Christ's grace for everything. His introductions to his, and the conclusions of his letters are filled with a mind that is fixed on grace and longs for those whom he loves most to experience that grace. Grace to you in peace is the opening of Romans and 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians and Galatians and Ephesians and Philippians and Colossians, 1 Thessalonians, 2 Thessalonians, Titus and Philemon. Grace, mercy, and peace is the opening of 1 Timothy and 2 Timothy. Grace be with you is the conclusion of Colossians, 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, Titus. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Romans, 1 Corinthians, Galatians, Philippians, 1 Thessalonians, 2 Thessalonians, Philemon. Grace be with all those who love our Lord Jesus Christ with love incorruptible is the closing of Ephesians. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. 2 Corinthians, Paul was consumed with grace. Desiring it, depending on it, living in the grace of God. All of these provisions to us from heavenly places earned by Christ. Paul realized that everything that he exhorted the people of God to be and do throughout his letter what was wholly dependent upon the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. He knew this to be true for himself and for every other believer in Christ. Paul, more than any other New Testament writer that I know of, links together doing the will of God with the grace of God at work in us through the Spirit in single, small sections of Scripture. More than any other writer that I know of. And I'm going to give you a bunch of them. I won't read them all, but I'm going to give you all of them that I have written down here, and you can write them down and look at them. I've given you these texts before. These texts are a continual magnet for me, and they give me so much joy, and they begin to put me at peace when I consider what God has called us to do as His children. Let me write them. Let me, let me give them to you. 1 Corinthians 15 Verses 9 and 10, we looked at that just a bit earlier. By the grace of God, I am what I am. Right? Paul wrote, and more. There's more there than that. 1 Corinthians 15, 9 through 10. 2 Corinthians 1, 8 through 10. I want to read this one to you. This is one of my new favorites. I actually found this verse when Devraj and Tristy were here with us last. I don't know why I missed it for so many years, but here it is. I hope you find verses you've missed for a long time that just thrill you. So here's one of them. 2 Corinthians 1, 8 through 10. For we do not want you to be unaware, brothers, of the affliction we experienced in Asia. For we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death. But that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God 
who raises the dead. He delivered us from such a deadly peril, and He will deliver us. On Him we have set our hope that He will deliver us again. There is Paul relying on the grace of God in a very difficult situation. And the Lord carried him through it. Another text, 2 Corinthians 9 and verse 8. We've looked already at 2 Corinthians 12, 9 and 10. So 2 Corinthians 9 and verse 8. God has made all, all grace abound to you, so that having all sufficiency in all things, you may abound to every good work. It's a sweeping verse. God just brings it together for us there for His glory. Philippians 2, 12-13 is another text where God is able to work in us to will and to work for His good pleasure. Philippians 2, 12-13. Colossians 1, 28-29. Him we proclaim, exhorting everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom so that we may present everyone blameless in Christ. For this I toil, Paul says, struggling with all His energy that is working in me. That's Paul. That's how he lived. From day to day. Ephesians 3, 20-21. He is able to do what? Exceeding abundantly above all that we ask or think according to the power that is at work in us. To Him be the glory forever and ever. Ephesians 3, 20 and 21. 2 Thessalonians 1, 12. 2 Thessalonians 2, 16. So 2 Thessalonians 1, 12. And 2.16. Titus 2. 11-14. Wonderful section on the grace of God. The grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for everyone, teaching us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires so that we can live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present world. Amazing texts. Amazing texts. And Hebrews 13. 20-21. Again, I argue Paul was the author. Maybe Luke wrote the book, but Paul was the author behind it. Hebrews 13, 20 and 21. He is giving to us all that we need through the raised shepherd of the sheep. Glorious text there. See, here's the point with all these texts. I hope you got these down. Maybe even commit them to memory. Christ will supply to His people the ability to do all that He has prepared for them to do. It's Absolutely true. Ephesians 2.10, right? He has caused us to walk in these good works that He has prepared beforehand. We're going to walk in them. God has prepared them sovereignly ahead of time. We will walk in them by His sovereign grace and He will supply to us all that we need to accomplish them. That's absolutely true. So, in, in, a, in an application of this one, do, do you realize your dependence? Do you feel your dependence? How many of you have entered a season of, of trial and testing where you said, I really feel dependent on God? And then, you know how it is? You come up out of that season of testing and trial and you're like, I feel really good. And sometimes you forget the sense of reality of how dependent you are. Our perception of our dependence changes. The reality of our dependence is constant. We are no more dependent on God when we are weak 
than we are when we are feeling strong. We just don't realize it the same way. And so a prayer that we may pray is, God, help me to always realize, even when I'm feeling well, even when I'm thinking clearly, help me to realize and be mindful of my absolute dependence upon you for all things. And do you recognize the power of God's grace? Is there anything that God has called you to do that God's grace is not able and entirely sufficient to enable you for? Absolutely not. It is able for all He calls you to. And are you mindfully and actively exercising trust in God's grace? Are you trusting it mindfully by the Spirit of God? I love Romans 4, 19-21 and how it details the inner heart of Abraham's exercise of faith through the Spirit. Listen to, listen to these words. This, I want to have this kind of exercise of faith happening constantly within me, and I, and I want it for you too. He writes, he did not, Paul writes of Abraham, he did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead since he was about a hundred years old, or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb, no belief made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God, being fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. That is gold for explaining active faith in the life of a believer. God says, here's what I've promised for you. Here's, how I'm, here's the path I'm going to cause you to walk in for my redemptive purposes. Now trust me. So Abraham looks at his own body. Got nothing. Abraham looks at Sarah's womb. Nothing there. All right, what do I do? And now we know his his struggle in that in the Old Testament, but it's glorious how God talks about him in the New Testament. You can, we can talk about that some other time. But here we see his faith enabled by the Holy Spirit where he said, okay, I'm not going to be full of unbelief. Instead of looking at my body, instead of looking at Sarah's womb, when I think about how God has promised to do this in and through us, I'm going to go strong, grow strong in my faith by Thinking on the glory of God. Giving glory to God. Understanding God's greatness and strength and power and and, and ability and wisdom and so on. And in that, he was convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. Are you convinced that God is able to do in and through your life what he has promised? That's faith in the grace of God. That's resting in the grace of God. That's where Paul lived as well. By the power of Christ's Spirit and grace, let us imitate Paul as he imitated Christ. Fourth this morning, a heart full of thankfulness. A heart full of thankfulness. Paul was so thankful in his letters. To be thankful or grateful, what does that mean? The definition in, in the biblical term means to be mindful of the favor that has been bestowed upon you. To be mindful of it. It's an interesting exercise to try to define thankfulness. Write out a def- try to write out a definition sometime. And don't use the words grateful or thankful in that definition. It's a little bit of a challenge. What is it? What is it? Here, here's what I think it is as, I, as I've looked through the New Testament and, 
and interacted with Paul's writings over the years. First, I think it's realizing the greatness of God's holiness and worth. And at the same time, in proximity to God's holiness and worth, realizing the greatness of our sinfulness and unworthiness. Keeping those before your mind's eye, you're also realizing the greatness of our need, the the difference between us and God. Realizing the greatness of our need, our plight in our sinfulness and our inability to climb out of it. And then then it's realizing not only that distance, that need, that plight, that inability, the greatness of God and our and our unworthiness and sinfulness, it's also then realizing the greatness of God's merciful reach toward us and the greatness of God's gracious working to pull us up out of the state that we are in. And as a result of being filled with that sense of His greatness, our sinfulness, our need, His merciful reach, His gracious working to bring us close, we become filled with a sense of amazement and wonder and joy and contentment, and honor toward Him, and love. And I think that sense is gratitude. Oh God, thank You for this. I can't, I'm amazed at what You've done for me. I'm amazed at this. When you truly realize and are mindful of God's grace toward you, the result will be an overflow of gratitude. That's, it, that it is to be a constant Christian experience because we've been given grace. The word grace is built right in the middle of the word thankfulness in the New Testament in the original language. It's the response, it's the appropriate response that the Christian's heart has toward a gift of grace. Undeserved. Paul was amazed at the grace he had received and the grace that God had given to not only him but the people of his churches. Amazed at how God was working in them so graciously. The introductions of his letters are filled with it. His thanksgiving to God for the manifold grace fills the bodies of his letters. I can't think of a better example than the letter of Colossians. Would you turn there just briefly? I'm going to point out four references to to you. The letter of Colossians does have a repeated theme of thanksgiving. First, you know how Paul prays. Colossians 1, 3. We always thank God the Father, Lord Jesus Christ, and we pray for you. And he's, he's still filled with thanksgiving. Verse 8. And you, from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, that asking that you would be filled with the knowledge of his will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to Him, bearing fruit in every good work, increasing in the knowledge of God, being strengthened with power according to His glorious might for all endurance and patience with joy, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. And Paul considers the grace of God at work in his people and in his churches and in himself so thankful. Filled with this thanksgiving. Look at the second chapter, Colossians 2, verses 6 and 7. Again, meditating on God's grace. Therefore, as you have received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in Him, 
rooted and built up in Him, established in the faith, just as you were taught, and abounding in thanksgiving. Colossians 3, 12-17. Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another. And if anyone has a complaint against another, forgiving each other, as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your heart, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. And let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. Whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through Him. It's like Paul's thinking about what we have in Christ, the peace of Christ, the love of Christ, the word of Christ, in the body of Christ, and, and he's overflow of thanksgiving. This, this is our song, this is our heart, this is our words. That's Paul, heart full of thanksgiving. And then chapter 4 and verse 2, it should fill our prayers. Continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. When you realize the grace of God in your life, you can't help but overflow with thanksgiving. Are our hearts overflowing with thanksgiving toward God from day to day? They won't if we're not mindful of God's grace toward us. They will if we are by the Spirit of God. Let's have our mind on such things by God's strength. And number five, finally this morning, sacrificial love toward others. Sacrificial love toward others. I think there's, there's some reasons why that demonstrate, I should say, Paul's sacrificial love toward others. Look first at Romans, Romans chapter 9. First, I see Paul intensely loving unbelievers. He had sacrificial love toward unbelievers for their salvation. This is such a well-known text of Paul because it's, in a sense, it's so shocking. Romans chapter 9, verse 1 through 5, Paul writes, I am speaking the truth in Christ. I'm not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart because, for, I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. You ever just take those words, that prayer to heart? Do do we ever... I, I try to get there, and I just cannot get there. In my mind, and really say like he said, my conscience is bearing me witness. I am telling you the truth. I wish that I were not elect that I were eternally destined by my own sin and God's grace withheld from me so that I would spend an eternity without Christ, I wish that so that these would be saved and they would have my place in God's election. What? Is, what kind of love is that? It's, Paul knows certainly that that can't happen, but for him to say that that is stirring in his heart, is astounding. Absolutely astounding. 
absolutely astounding. For I could wish this. I have great sorrow, unceasing anguish. Paul had an extremely intense love for unbelievers for their salvation. You see it again in Romans 10, 1 through 4. You can jot that reference down. It comes back there. He prays it for these Jewish friends, family of his. I also see it in 1 Corinthians 9, 19 to 23, where the Apostle Paul says, I will become all things to all men inside of God's law so that I may win some. How far are we willing to bend inside of God's law for the sake of another's salvation? Giving up preferences, restricting ourselves willingly, and so on. Taking on uncomfortable ways of, of doing something in order to meet someone where they are. Isn't that something? Paul said that. 1 Corinthians 9, 19-23. So that I may win some to Christ. He had sacrificial love toward unbelievers for their salvation. He had sacrificial love toward believers for their sanctification. Philippians 1, 20-26. Paul <laughs> talks about his, his imprisonment and how he is how it's a real possibility in his mind that he might depart and be with the Lord. And he said he's struggling. He says, I know to depart and be with the Lord is far better, but it's really good for you, Philippian church, that I remain here. Look at look what he says. I'll, I'll read some of this section to you. I am hard-pressed between the two, Paul says in verse 23. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that's far better, but to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you for all for your progress and joy in the faith. To think about that even. Think about that. If you knew, if, Paul, if you had Paul's mindset, all right, I can go and be with the Lord or I will stay here and labor for your spiritual well-being, what would you rather have? Right? Paul's like, well, far better to go, but... I want to deny myself that glorious treasure at the moment because it's so important, needful for me to be here with you for your joy, for your progress in Christ. What what a heart of sacrificial love God gave to him. You see that in Colossians chapter 1, 24 through 29, Paul says he rejoices in his suffering. We'll look more at this text next week, Lord willing. Colossians 1, 24 to 29, I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, so that you can hear the gospel, so that you can grow in Christ-likeness. Oh, his appeals were so loving. It's, it's amazing to hear Paul write to these churches. He, is, he does not come to them most often with a hammer, you know, pounding on their fingernails to get them to do what they're supposed to do. He is appealing to them with great love, like a father to a child. I'll give you three texts. You can look them up later because we're out of time this morning. 2 Corinthians 4, 1 through 15. 2 Corinthians 4, 1 through 15. 2 Corinthians 5, 11 through 15. 2 Corinthians 6, 1 through 13. So three 2 Corinthians texts 4, 1 through 15, 5, 11 through 15, and 6, 1 through 13. In each of these, Paul opens his heart to these, and he says, open your heart to me. 
I have struggled on your behalf. I'm willing to keep it up. Please, please open your heart to Christ. Precious texts there. And then he had a sacrificial love toward his ministry partners. He, he says it there in Philippians chapter 1, 1 through 13, how he has a great affection of Christ toward them because they're partners with him in the gospel. That's Philippians 1, 3 through 11. And then it just lists name after name in, in Romans chapter 16, verses 1 through 16. His closing there in that letter is especially clear a picture of Paul's love. Let me just read a couple of them to you. He's closing this letter. And he says things like, I, I commend to you our sister Phoebe, the servant of the church at Sancrea, that you may welcome her in the Lord in a way worthy of the saints to help her in whatever she may need from you. For she has been a patron of many and of myself as well. Greet Prisca and Aquila, my fellow workers in Jesus Christ, who risk their necks for my life, to whom not only I give thanks, but all the churches of the Gentiles give thanks as well. Greet also the church in their house. Greet my beloved Epinetus, who was the first convert to Christ in Asia. He said, greet this beloved, greet this beloved. And he talks about his connection with them. Paul is so full of love for his ministry partners. He realizes God's grace toward him through those whom he has brought into his life. Do we love people like that for the sake of Christ? Do we love unbelievers like that? Do we love fellow believers like that? Do we love those whom we minister alongside of like this? You know, I find Paul's motive for this kind of love so compelling. You know, when, if, you, if you think about loving people based on the response that you will receive from them, you won't love them well. If you're, if you're calculating in your mind your feelings for them based on the response that you're receiving from them, you won't love them well or persistently. Paul didn't love people like that. He loved people, and you can see it in, in Acts chapter 20. Paul loved people because of the price that Christ paid for them as fellow believers. That's how he loved. He loved them based on the worth of the price that was paid, the blood of Christ, the precious blood of Christ, he says there in Acts 20. And he, and he loved them because of the joy that he wanted them to experience, Philippians 1. He longed for them to have an experience as a believer and he labored for that for them. That's why he loved them. I want you to have this joy that I have. And he loved them because of the work that the Lord had prepared for them. He loved them and served them and taught them and shepherded them and, and influenced them because he knew that God would use him in his life to prepare them to walk in the good works that he had planned for them. What good works will come from those whom you are seeking to love well as God changes them through your love. Think of the people beyond that person who may come to Christ and be shaped by that person. Doesn't that motivate you to love them well and do what is sacrificial and hard because of what will come beyond that? And for the glory of Christ, that they would bring glory to Christ out of their life 
for eternity, that they would stand. Paul had this in mind so much through his letters. He poured himself out in sacrificial love because he imagined the day that they would stand blameless before the throne of grace with great joy. And he said, I'm loving you now in all of your flaws and all of your issues and all of your struggles that I've experienced too because through the love of Christ that work in our lives together, you will be prepared to stand with joy, blameless, bringing glory to Christ who bought you for eternity. Those are the motivations behind Paul's love. It has nothing to do with what he would receive from the person's response. We need that, don't we? We need that. We need to love one another like that, like Paul did. So by the power of Christ's spirit and grace, let's imitate Paul as he imitated Christ. In conclusion this morning, I just want to underscore for you that it is a worthy pursuit for the people of Christ, for the people of Christ's church to study the life and the ministry of the Apostle Paul in order to follow him. Not because he was a superhuman but because he was a weak sinner whose life uniquely displayed the power of Christ's grace and Christ's likeness. That's why. This morning as we close, let me appeal to you who may not be yet in Christ. Are you a child of God this morning? Have you been captivated by the grace of Christ and His forgiveness? Do you know that it belongs to you? Have you turned from sin? Turned from your self-righteous pursuits in order to impress God to receive you into everlasting life? Are you resting completely upon the merits of Jesus Christ to be accepted by God? I want to read for you maybe the gospel appeal from the Apostle Paul that he would read to you, maybe, if he were here with us this morning. 2 Corinthians 5, 16 through 6 and verse 2. He says, From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh. Even though once we regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard Him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to Himself. And gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to Himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making His appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake, He has made Him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. Working together with Him then, we appeal to you not to receive the grace of God in vain. For He says, in a favorable time I have listened to you, and in a day of salvation I have helped you. Behold, now is the favorable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. So I appeal to you in the same way. If you see that you are this morning still a sinner before God, separated from God by your sin and unable in your weakness and in your sin to please God. If you see yourself as that, good, but come to Christ knowing that He can make you a new creation just like Paul said. It doesn't matter what your, what your inabilities are. All that matters is that you come to Christ as the object of your faith. You repent 
and come to Him. He will make you a new creation. God is willing to reconcile you to Himself. God is willing to bring you out of a broken relationship into a right relationship with Him through Christ. He is willing to not count your trespasses to you. He's willing to discount your sin because He will count them in the body of Christ on the cross and punish Him instead of you if you will come to Christ in faith. Be reconciled to Paul, God says. Every provision has been made. God made Christ to become our sin. So that if you will trust Him and His saving work on the cross, He will cause you to become His righteousness before God. So don't receive God's grace in vain. Receive it by faith. And God, know that God hears you. God listens to the sinner's cry for salvation. He will help you. He will save you if you will turn from yourself and sin to Him. And Paul says there, today is the day of salvation. You don't know when the Lord may call you out of this life and into eternity. Today is the day of salvation. You don't know when you may have another opportunity to hear the gospel. You're not guaranteed any of that. Here you are, sitting today, hearing the word of the gospel from the writings of the Apostle Paul, and someone is inviting you with urgency to turn from yourself and your sin to Christ. Every provision has been made. Hear the word of God and respond. Let's stand together and pray as we move into our Lord's Supper this morning. I invite the men to come as we do pray. Father, we are so grateful for examples in the Scripture like the Apostle Paul. But Father, we confess we do not pretend that we have the ability to follow in those footsteps. We, like Paul, plead to know the sufficient power of your grace at work in our lives for this. Father, we ask you to do it in us, to will and to work for your good pleasure. For the glory of Christ, we pray. And if there is someone here this morning that is not yet born again, not yet born from above, please summon them by your grace. May they turn from their sin, from their self-righteousness, to Christ alone. We pray in his name. Amen.